0: Today's scripture comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, verses 1-6. through 6. In the year of the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Um, Quick add-on to what was just read. Uh, For some reason, uh, it was caught off at verse 6, and I was supposed to add verse 7. So that's not Daniel's fault. That's my fault. So uh, let's continue to hear God's word, starting at verse 7. Or let me start back at verse 6, since we have it up there. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Please pray with me. Father, we ask now that you would help us to come before you, for we are in desperate need of your word. We are in desperate need because many of us are struggling with sin. Many of us are living in sin. Many of us have been sinned against. And because of these things that have happen to us or what we have done to others and most especially to you. We come to you now asking for you to come to us, giving us the assurance that not only are we secure and safe in your presence, but there is hope for renewal. There is hope for justice. There is hope for us to once again be the people that you've called us to be and the dignity and the honor that is attached to that would take away the shame and the guilt that haunts us even now. Father, I pray for all of my brothers and sisters gathered here in this place that you would speak to them wherever they may be in their walk of life. And we also pray for those among us who are our guests, those who are seeking, those who are considering, those who are wondering whether or not you truly are who you claim to be, whether you truly are who we desire in our heart of hearts for you to be. That is our God, our creator, our father, and our friend. God, would you now... Be with us as we sit humbly at your feet with teachable hearts. Make us teachable to the powerful word that you give in the power of your Holy Spirit. And therefore, bless this message in spite of the messenger who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You know, uh, like many of you, I've been a Christian for quite some time. And therefore, like many of you, I have sung many Christian worship songs. Like you have. And as I consider some of the songs that we sing to God, whether they be in the form of a promise to God, a promise of obedience, a promise of commitment, or even a promise of living out a declaration that we believe is true, I sometimes wonder how sincere we are. I really wonder if we're really sincere when we make these songs of praises to our God. And one particular song that makes me think of this the most is a song that if you've been a Christian for a while, you no doubt have heard and something that you probably consider as one of your favorites. It's a song simply entitled Take My Life, written by a man by the name of Scott Underwood. And the beginning lyrics of this song goes like this. Holiness. Holiness is what I long for. Holiness is what I need. I remember when I first heard this song as a sophomore in college, and we would sing this during our weekly college fellowship, and I would look around during this time of worship, and I would look at my peers, and I would see them singing this song with an expression of sincerity across their face, sometimes with streams of tears going down, with accompanying words like, Yes, Lord, yes! You know, if they were very Korean, Chuyo, Lord, Chuyo! Fast forward to when I was a youth pastor, and I would lead worship. Yes, I used to lead worship, right? I can play guitar. So long it's not super fast, you know, but I would lead this song and I would look around my youth group students and again, the same exhibition of sincerity. And then fast forward when I was an associate pastor out in Seattle for a number of years, I would see adults singing this very song exhibiting this same kind of behavior. Now, of course, this isn't the only song that speaks of God's holiness and the Christian's call to be holy, but that just even furthers my concern. We Christians for many, many years have been declaring to our God in song form that, Lord, we desire to be holy. We want to be holy. We yearn for holiness. And yet I really wonder, is that really true? Do you really want what you claim you want to get? Now, I know as a pastor talking to a room full of Christians, that question can sound somewhat stupid. Uh, Pastor, do you not realize what we're doing right now? I mean, why do you think we're here, Pastor? Duh. You don't think we take the holiness of God seriously? You don't think we want to be holy? Why are we here then, huh? Why would you ask such a silly question? Well, I'll tell you why. But first, we're continuing our sermon series that we just began last week, entitled God As He Is. And the point of this series is to educate us about what the Bible says about God as He is written about in the scriptures. Why? Well, because we live in a world that has many views, many opinions, many ideas about God but surprisingly, much of these views, ideas, and opinions are not rooted in the Bible. And given the fact that many of you have people in your lives who support these caricatures that our society has about God, I found that it was necessary to equip, to educate, and empower you to be fully informed to God as he is written about in the scriptures. And so today we come To a characteristic of God, or what is sometimes known as an attribute of God, that many theologians consider to be the chief attribute of God, the most central attribute of God there is, and that is the holiness of God. Today, I want to talk about what it means for God to be holy. And as we do consider this topic, we take a look at Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. And what we're going to discover is that we have a very paradoxical relationship to this concept of the holiness of God, to where on the one hand, there's a part of us that longs to have holiness, and yet there's another part of us that wants to be avoiding holiness at all costs. But it's by understanding this seemingly paradox and having it untangled for us that we will come away with it with such clarity and with such conviction and with such security within that when we really say, God, I want to be holy, we can really meet it in our heart of hearts, okay? So with that in mind, two things I'd like to share with you this morning pertaining to God's holiness. Number one, the desperate need for God's holiness. The desperate need for God's holiness. Number two, the satisfying of our need for God's holiness. The satisfying of our need for God's holiness, okay? So let's jump right in. First, the desperate need for God's holiness. In his book, Put it all together, a psychologist by the name of Maurice Wagner opens the first chapter of his book by citing a conversation that he had with one of his patients during one of their counseling sessions, a man by the name of Harry. Follow along as I read his account of what happened. Quote, Harry entered my counseling room perplexed. He sat down and anxiously braced himself against the cushions of the sofa. I remarked, something seems to be bothering you today. Yes, he replied cautiously. Something is bothering me. I've been trying to figure me out. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? A person my age talking like this? Harry hesitated thoughtfully, then continued. That's what's wrong with me. I'm never really sure of myself, just who I am. I guess I'm trying to find me. It's ridiculous, but that's the way it is. Regardless of how good I feel at times, there's always something missing. I never get hold of a secure feeling about myself. When I seem to, and that is rare, something always happens to take it away. Many people are like Harry. Indeed, many people are like Harry. In fact, many of you are like Harry. Why? Well, it goes without saying that feelings of anxiousness, alienation, and abasement are so prevalent in our culture today. Just last year, Medical News Today Journal came out with a study that showed that there is an increase, a skyrocketing increase of what they call generalized anxiety disorder. GA D. Okay? And here's what's so interesting, ironically, that countries that have this biggest spike the most are the countries that are the most technologically and economically developed. The richest countries and the most technologically advanced countries are the ones who are suffering from this increased rate of what is known as GAD, Generalized Anxiety Disorder. And here's what's so interesting about this study it goes on to say that experts have no idea why this is the case. Not because they can't figure out what could be a solution, but because there seems to be so many causes, so many factors, so many reasons as to why a person could suffer this kind of debilitating emotional psychological issue, such as genetics, such as economic suffering, such as being parented very badly, or even, surprise, surprise, social media, right? That has a big impact in creating a sense of alienation, anxiety, and abasement. The point is clear, disorienting anxiety, insecure alienation, self hitting abasement is growing and therefore a growing problem. Now, at this point, you're probably wondering something, and so I want to answer that question. And that is, why, pastor, are you talking about things like general anxiety disorder on a sermon on the holiness of God? Well, I'll tell you why. What do you think is the most common reaction that people have when it comes to this issue of holiness? What do you think the most common reaction is in our society? Do you know what it is? It's boredom. People are bored with holiness. People are just not interested in holiness. And in some ways, you can kind of understand it. I mean, you ever hang around someone who our society calls holy people? You know the type. They don't drink. They don't smoke. They don't dance. They don't laugh at jokes. They're always austere and serious. All right? Always so full of such prudish mindsets. Please don't be thinking of me right now, right? <laughs> right? What's the typical reaction when you're around people like that? Aren't people kind of bored when they're around such people? Or how about when we invite people to church where the whole concept of why we gather is to worship the holiness of our God, and yet what so sadly tends to be the common experience that people have when they come to church, hopefully not our church? Isn't it this? <sighs> bored out of their minds and so easily just in those two experiences so understandable as to why people would take the experiences around quote unquote holy people or around holy settings and think man if these people if these settings are boring and all sent around this holiness of god then maybe god's holiness is boring maybe a holy god is boring and as a result what we see happening is that people make this correlation between holiness and boredom in such a way that they conclude that holiness is irrelevant. It's unnecessary. It's insignificant to my day to day living. And so what's that common belief aware to our consciousness now that Isaiah is going to challenge us by looking at our passage today? We're starting in verse one. We read this in the year that King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple above him stood the seraphim each had six wings with two he covered his face and with two he covered his feet and with two he flew and one called to another and said holy 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 is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke Paul's right there. Your attention, please. Notice the behavior of the seraphim. Sarah, what? You know, the seraphim, angels, cosmic beings, the entourage of God. Okay? What are the seraphim doing? Well, I'll tell you what they're not doing. They're not yawning. Their eyes are not glazed over because their mind is just wandering off, thinking what's on TV later tonight. Or they're not frustrated or annoyed because they're in the presence of someone who's so prudish, like holy people tend to be. In other words, these angels, they are not bored. They're far from bored whatsoever. And so the question is, how are they acting? How are they behaving? Read again, verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Now this is odd behavior because it's so paradoxical. Here are these angels standing in the presence of God, and yet they're trying to hide From God, Right. Isn't that confusing? Here they are trying to get as close to God as possible. And yet the closer they get, the more they want to avoid God, evidenced by the fact that they're hiding their face and they're hiding their feet. What's up with that? Is there any way we can make sense of such weird and strange behavior? Well, I believe there is because there is a comparable behavior that we see so often in our society today that parallels how the angels are behaving. You ever watch people meet their favorite celebrities ever? You ever see how they behave? It's kind of weird. Because on the one hand, they're so excited. And they're so jubilant. Like, oh! they want to get close so they can get a selfie, right? They put their arm around their favorite celebrity. And yet, on the other hand, sometimes they act like they saw a boogeyman, right? A killer. Like, oh, my goodness! And they start running away from their celebrity, right? You ever see that weird paradoxical behavior? Just a couple years ago, I was watching Ellen on TV, Ellen DeGeneres, just in case you're not sure who I'm referring to. Ellen DeGeneres was review, uh, reviewing, interviewing Diane Keaton. Diane Keaton's a very famous actress. Uh, for those of you who were born in the 80s, you would know who she is. But she's just a famous actress, okay? If you saw her face, you would recognize her, you young ones. But um, anyway, during the interview, it was revealed that she's a huge Justin Bieber fan. I mean, huge. She would call herself a Belieber Isn't that what they call massive Justin Bieber fans, Belieber? Not that I am one, but you see the point, right? And Ellen knew this, of course, and she set it up to where Justin would come out during this interview. And if you go on YouTube, you can actually see this reaction. I'm going to do a reenactment of how Diane Keaton behaved. She literally went like this. Oh, my goodness! Oh, my goodness! No! No! Took her hands and covered her face and started moving away from Justin, but as soon as Justin was able to wrap his arms around her, she just gave in and melted and gotten in much closer. Right? He's like, oh, Justin! Right? We as a society have such a strange, ridiculous reaction when it comes to encountering our favorite celebrities and yet there's such a redeeming quality to it because it gives us a helpful illustration to the proper response we should have when we're in the holy presence of god and what response is that attractive terror attractive terror when someone generally encounters god's holiness there should be a paradoxical response to on the one hand you're absolutely terrified and yet You're so absolutely attracted to where you want to get as close to this terrifying figure that is scaring you out of your mind. It's the appropriate reaction you get when you're in the presence of someone who you see as so superior, so greater, so much more marvelous than you. Someone who intimidates the heck out of you and yet you cannot stop looking away from them because they make you marvel in their presence to where you just want to get closer and closer. Read again in verse 1 how Isaiah describes his vision of God, the holiness of God. He says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Here, Isaiah is describing his vision of God's holiness. And what is God doing in his vision? God is sitting on the throne, and this throne is located over all the earth. Now, the fact that Isaiah sees God sitting, that is absolutely astounding. Why? Why? Why is that so astounding? Well, let me give you an illustration. With the exception of all of you in here, oh, excuse me, with the exception of me, excuse me, all of you in here are sitting, right? All of you here are sitting down. But let's say that your grandfather walks in this room or your grandmother, or someone, or just some figure who you deeply admire, deeply respect. The moment you see your grandparent, what are you going to do? Are you going to stay seated in your chair? right no you're gonna stand up <laughs> right you're gonna stand up straight why because this is a person of honor in your mind right and you show your reverence you show your honor to someone who you esteem with such honor right or how about when you go to a performance of some sort whether it's a, a sporting event or whether it's you know a musical concert and you see this performer either on stage or on the court, and they just pulled some amazing feet, right? Are people going to just sit there and be like, oh, that was nice? No, they're going to stand, and they're going to give an amazing ovation. Why? Because they acknowledge that what they have witnessed is absolutely, astoundingly amazing, right? Or how about if you're at a wedding, and you're waiting for the ceremony to begin, you're sitting down in the sanctuary or wherever the wedding is held, and then all of a sudden, you hear that music. Bum, bum, ba bum. Wait. Bum, 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 bum. No, that's not, that's not it. <laughs> da, 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 that's the one. <laughs> that, oh, sorry, guys. I don't know why I was thinking that. Um, bum. And what do you do? You stand because in walks in the bride. Because at that moment, in that very room, there is no one who is more important, there is no one who is more beautiful than the bride, right? There's something instinctual about knowing that when you're in the presence of someone who is more honorable, more amazing, and more beautiful than you, more important than you, you stand. That is the proper reaction. But look again at what Isaiah says when he sees God. What is God doing? Is he standing? No. He's sitting. He's not just sitting in a sanctuary somewhere. He's not just sitting in a stadium. He's sitting over all creation. Not just over the earth but of over all the supernatural realms, over all the angels. Why? Because God does not stand for anybody. Everyone stands for him. Nobody does God ever stand for. Why? Because there's no one more honorable. There is no one more amazing. There is no one more important and more beautiful. That's what the holiness of God means. That there is no one more holy, more beautiful, more amazing, more powerful than god he's at a completely different category by the way that's what the definition of holiness is to be of such great different category of being so beyond of being completely other of being wholly other now i know that sounds strange to us because many of us define holiness as being ethically pure or morally righteous which is true But another definition of holiness that is just as defining as that one is this idea that God is completely other, that he's completely unlike anything or anyone. Consider what Pastor Mark Buchanan says. In his words, quote, holiness means holy other. The holy God is totally separate from his creatures and his creation. His essential being is not bound to anything or to anyone. He is utterly, completely free, independent. He needs not one thing for his life, his joy, his being God. God is God no matter what, whether we acknowledge him or not, whether we worship him or not, whether we obey him or not. God's essence is not altered one iota by anything external to him. His holiness is holy otherness you see unlike a grandfather that needs grandchildren to be recognized as honorable unlike an amazing athlete or musical performer who needs an audience to be recognized as amazing unlike a bride that needs a marriage ceremony to be recognized as important and beautiful god doesn't need anybody he doesn't need anything for him to be holy god is holy right he is completely independent to where even if the entire world, since its beginning, were just filled with atheists and agnostics, God would not be any less holy because his holiness is not dependent or determined upon those who would recognize for his holiness, but because of that is who he is. He is holy. He is the Holy One. And here's what's so interesting about God's holiness. It's everywhere. The understanding, the awareness of God's holiness is everywhere. Look again at what it says, starting in verse 3. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Here we read the seraphim, these angelic beings doing something interesting in the presence of God. They're calling out to each other. They're singing by simply saying, Holy, holy, holy holy in triads over and over holy 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 theologians call this the trisagion which essentially literally means three times holy that's all they're saying in god's presence holy 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 and the question is why why are these angels speaking with this trisagion why are they singing to one another about how holy god is well to borrow a cultural phrase it's because they're trying to communicate with those three words That God's holiness has just gone viral. You guys know when something goes viral on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram, right? That means everyone knows about it. Everyone has seen it, right? And by saying God is holy, 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 they're essentially saying through that trisagion, the whole earth is aware. Everyone who lives on the earth knows the holiness of God, which is why in the very next breath, what do they say? The whole earth is filled with his glory in commentating on this very statement, E.J. Young, a great Old Testament scholar at Westminster Seminary, says this: On this construction, the thought is that the glory of God consists in all that is found in the created universe. The revelation of God in the created universe, His declarative glory, is sufficient to convince men of God's holiness, so that man is without man is without excuse. The entirety of creation, visible and invisible, speak with voices clear and positive of the glory of the Holy God. Wherever we turn our eyes, we see the marks of His majesty, and should lift. our our hearts in praise to him who is holy. So there it is. The holiness of God is something that every human being that has ever lived and will ever live is instinctively aware of. You cannot run away from it, you cannot avoid it, you cannot deny it. It's so indelibly marked in all of creation that everywhere you look, it's everywhere. Kind of like a Starbucks. Everywhere you turn, it's like There's another Starbucks here. The holiness of God is pervasively all over creation to where no human being can ever say that they're not aware of it. Now, if you're here today investigating Christianity, I know what I'm saying to you doesn't sound agreeable, right? Because after all, you're not even sure if there is a God that exists. So how can I be so bold to declare to to you that, yes, you too are aware of the holiness of God? Well, here's where I want to come back to that story of Harry that I began this point on. And this whole idea of generalized anxiety disorder. Can we have uh, that quote about Harry up? If you peruse this quote again, here you see a man who has all the symptoms of someone suffering from generalized anxiety disorder. Suffered from anxiety, a sense of alienation, filled with abasement, self hatred, right? Now hold on to that thought as I now read to you another quote from a theologian by the name of Christopher Ash as he describes someone suffering from a guilty conscience. He says this quote, Secrecy is our natural response to a guilty conscience. The last thing a guilty conscience wants is to come out into the open and be exposed. It's no different with us. The last thing we want is the full record of our failure to be projected onto the screen for all to see. Because our natural response to a guilty conscience is one to hide, there will be an inbuilt tendency to loneliness. A guilty conscience always reduces human community and isolates individuals. It foreshadows the terrible and total absence of friendship in hell that is interesting. Because if you didn't know any better, as you read this man's description of a guilty conscience, it would fit very well to the psychological profile of someone suffering from GAD, generalized anxiety disorder. And then when you couple that with the sociological fact that as countries become more technologically developed and more economically advanced, that they veer towards atheism, right? They've done many studies to show this. You combine those two ideas, the conclusion is irrefutable. And what is that? The conclusion is We all desperately need God's holiness. Evidenced by the fact that when we do unholy things, sin, leading to a guilty conscience, it leaves us in a state of psychological deprivation and distress. In other words, the fact that we see a growing, universal, pervasive problem of anxiety, alienation, and a sense of abasement, a sense of self-hatred is indirect proof that people need the holiness of God because of the fact they deprive themselves of God's holiness that leads them to this growing problem, right? You become aware of something when you realize you're suffering by being deprived of it. If a person is suffering thirst, that clearly is a direct proof that they were created for water. If a person is suffering from hunger, that is proof that they are in desperate need for food. If a person is suffering from a pervasive growing sense of guilt and shame that manifests in alienation and abasement and his anxiety. That is indirect proof that we are called to be holy, that we need to be holy because by depriving ourselves of holiness, it leads us in this condition. Why do you think Isaiah references Uzziah in verse 1, King Uzziah? You think it's simply a historical marker to tell us when he had his vision? No, no, no. There's a specific reason why Isaiah references King Uzziah, specifically in the year that he died. Do you know how Uzziah died and what condition he died in? Second Corinthians 26, starting in verse 16. This is King Uzziah. But when he, Uzziah, had become powerful, he also became proud, which led to his downfall. He sinned against the Lord his God by entering the sanctuary of the Lord's temple and personally burning incense on the incense altar. Azariah the high priest went in after him with 80 other priests of the Lord all brave men. They confronted King Uzziah and said, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. That is the work of the priests alone, the descendants of Aaron, who are set apart for this work. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have sinned. The Lord God will not honor you for this. Uzziah, who was holding an incense burner, became furious. But as he was standing there, raging at the priest before the incense altar in the Lord's temple, leprosy suddenly broke out on his forehead. When Azariah, the high priest, and all the other priests saw the leprosy, they rushed him out. And the king himself was eager to get out because the Lord had struck him. So King Uzziah had leprosy until the day he died. He lived in isolation in a separate house, for he was excluded from the temple of the Lord. Here is the recording, the biblical account of how Uzziah died. He died of leprosy. And just in case you're not aware, leprosy is a really nasty skin condition where basically your flesh is rotting off of you as you slowly die from it manifesting in boils disgusting rashes and scarring and because this was a highly contagious disease anyone with leprosy essentially had to be alienated from their family they ended up going hiding into some outskirts of the city in some cave with other lepers here are people in a condition where they are alienated from their families which means there's no one to take care of them they have to fend for themselves thereby leading to anxiety and yet as we just read Leprosy in Scripture was considered to be a punishment from God, which could easily let a person with a prick conscience be filled with such abasement, such self-hatred, such self-loathing because of it. Right? And why did Uzziah suffer leprosy? We just read it. He dared to go into the part of the temple he was not authorized to go into. He crossed a boundary he should not have gone into. He was not set apart. He was not sanctified to go into the inner part's of the temple and he went in anyway and god struck him down because he thought he could be holy like god he thought like many countries become when they become economically powerful and technologically advanced right i don't need to functionally recognize god i can function like an atheist i can go anywhere in that temple i don't need to give regard to the holiness of god and as a result what happened He suffered a physical manifestation of what so many people suffer psychologically, internally, with their anxiety disorders. They feel alienated, they have anxiety, and they have such self-hatred, such self-abasement. Yes, indeed. The yearning for the holiness of God to where we need it is evidenced by the fact that the consequences of disregarding it is everywhere. People are suffering the consequences everywhere when they disregard God's holiness. Now, Given now that we see that we are in need of the holiness of God, the question that we're left with is, how do we satisfy this need? How do we satisfy our need for the holiness of God? And this leads me to the final point, the satisfying our need for God's holiness. Read again with me, verse 5 down to 7. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Okay, so here we just see Isaiah's reaction when he sees the holiness of God, and it's a very similar reaction to someone suffering from GAD. What does he do? Woe is me, right? For I am ruined. I like how one translation puts it this way. It's over. I'm doomed. That's the New Living Translation, one of my favorite ones uh, recently. It's over. I'm doomed. But then, after saying this weird statement, he says something even weirder. He describes why he feels so doomed. What does he say? For I'm a man of unclean character. I'm a man with an unclean mind. I'm a man of unclean morals. I'm a man of an unclean. No, he doesn't say any of that. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. (laughs) What? That's weird. That's so random. That's like Kim saying, I'm a man of unclean pinky toes. Right? It just sounds so arbitrary, so random. Or is it? Do you know what the Bible says distinguishes man, a creature of God, from all other creatures? Do you guys know how the scriptures would distinguish mankind from all other creatures of God? It's the fact that we can speak. No other creature of God can speak The way God can speak words because we're image bearers of God. Right. And because that is the case, to speak words is synonymous to be human. It's the one thing that distinguishes us from any other creature on earth. Now, of course, other creatures communicate, but no other creature actually speaks words like the creator speaks Words. Consider what theologian Paul Tripp says this as he reflects on the creation of Adam and Eve. He writes, as we look at communication from the vantage point of creation, we need to notice that Adam and Eve talk. Perhaps this point seems too obvious to bear mentioning, but we should not let its significance slip by us. Adam and Eve's ability to communicate in words made them unique in all creation. The ability to speak words as a creature is what makes us unique human so with that backdrop in mind when isaiah says i'm a man of unclean lips what does he say he's saying i am an unclean human being that's what he's saying okay doesn't help much pastor john <laughs> what does it mean to be an unclean human is he needs a shower or something is he stinky what does that mean okay. it's so strange you know the bible has a lot of strange things to say doesn't it for example if you read the book of leviticus you find a lot of weird laws that God commands, specifically when it comes to the kinds of foods that his people were allowed to eat back then. We still know of this as kosher laws, right? Kosher dietary laws. You go to any Jewish deli, you know, you know, if you go to like Ben's deli, they only serve kosher food. By the way, don't bring any outside food into Ben's because they'll like kick you out. I made the mistake of bringing Gentile Cheerios in from the outside and they're like, excuse me, sir, are, th- are those from the outside? No, 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 no. You, you, can't, you can't eat that here. That's for my my daughter. No, 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 no. It's not kosher. It's not kosher. We got kosher Cheerios. I tasted to see if there was any difference. None. It did not taste more holy. It tasted exactly the same. But that's how serious they were. And yet they get it from Levitical law. And you read Leviticus, you're like, that is weird. Why does God command them to eat certain kinds of animals as food, but he forbids other kinds of animals from eating as food? Have you ever wondered that? Right? Like the foods that the Israelites were able to eat, those were the clean foods. But the ones they couldn't eat, that was considered unclean. You cannot eat unclean food. Don't touch it. Don't eat it. Why is that the case? Well, it turns out there's actually some real powerful, insightful reasons for that. Bible scholars tell us that in the animal kingdom, God divides it in three categories based on the realm that they primarily function in. There's animals of the sky, like birds. There's animals of the sea, like fish. And then there's animals of the ground, like sheep and goat and oxen and so forth, right? And here's what's an interesting thing. If you study these animals and the food laws that correspond to what God permitted to eat and not to eat, you notice a general pattern, okay? You know what that pattern is? Is that God forbid his people to eat animals that he called unclean that lived in multiple spheres. So, for example, alligators, Israelites were not permitted to eat alligators because not only did they live in the water and function in the water, but they also functioned on earth. Right? But the animals he did permit them to eat were those who confined themselves primarily in one sphere. Right, Birds, you know, not insects because they were all over the place, but certain things that stayed within one realm, whether it be water, air or land. And scholars tell us that the reason why God permitted his people to eat those kinds of animals was because he was trying to teach them, even in the most mundane things such as eating, about how his people needed to always stay within a certain boundary, that they should never trespass beyond the boundaries that God has permitted them to go. And so with that backdrop in mind, Isaiah is using this idea by saying that I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm an unclean human being, meaning I am guilty of crossing boundaries, and going to places that I should never have trespassed. In other words, he is saying, I am guilty of trying to enter into the boundary, the realm of the divine. I am guilty like Uzziah, who went into the parts of the temple I was forbidden to go into because I was not permitted to go. And he says, woe is me. I have become unclean. Isaiah is saying he is guilty of trying to be like God. By trying to say There are no boundaries for me. I can go wherever I want. I can be who I say I am. I can be my own God. So here's the question. How did Isaiah try to be his own God? Go back to what Mark Buchanan, Pastor Mark Buchanan says about holiness. What does he say about God's holiness? He says that he does not need, God does not need anything or anyone to be holy. God doesn't need anything or anyone to be beautiful, to be important, to be honorable, right? That's God. His holiness is completely set apart, but what's true for God is not true for man, right? Man cannot be holy on their own. We, mankind, do not have the ability to manufacture within ourselves the level of importance, the level of beauty, the level of honor that God has, all on our own strength. We need someone outside of us to give us value, to give us importance, to give us honor. That's God. Because only God is truly the indigenous Holy One, the inherent Holy One. And we are only holy indirectly, in response, in relation to a holy God. That's what he is trying to teach us here. The only way you and I can be holy is not attempting to be holy on our own merits, on our own strength, but an utter dependence on the one who is inherently holy. And so here's the question. How can we be holy? How can we meet this need of holiness so that we're not alienated, so we're not filled with abasement, so we're not filled with anxiety? Verse 7, again. Your guilt is taken away, and your sins atoned for. There it is. The only way you and I can satisfy our need for holiness that will free us from any sort of anxiety, any sort of alienation, any sense of self-hatred and self-loathing is if we have our sins atoned for. In other words, believing the gospel. Believing the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that says, even though God had every right to separate himself from you because of your sins, because you've trespassed into his realm to where he should just leave you in a state of spiritual leprosy. He does not. What does he do? He comes into our realm, an unclean realm, a realm of dishonor, a realm of ugliness, a realm of insignificance, nothing amazing, nothing impressive. By becoming a man, Jesus Christ, suffering the full penalty of all of our sins by dying a humiliating death on the cross that was led up to him feeling alienated from his Father above and by his own disciples, of him going through amazing anxiety to the point where he's sweating blood in his sweat, to the point of him feeling so obeyed. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus did all of that for you so that you would have forgiveness of sins, so that you would have eternal life, so that you could receive his holiness. Why? Why did Jesus do this? To show you that his love is a holy love. Remember what holiness is. It's something that is set apart, something that is unmatched, something that is unlike anything. Jesus' love for us is not like our love for Jesus. It's not even our love at all. You know how we love in this world? Our love is, if you love me, I'll love you back. right? Or I'll love you back, so you have to love me. That's the dynamic of love in our broken world. Do you understand? But God's love for us is not like that. Even though we don't love God, he doesn't respond, okay, then I'm not going to love you back. No, he says, my love is holy. It's not like your love. You don't love me? Fine, I'm going to love you anyway. I'm going to love you anyway. God's love is a holy love because it's a gracious love. It's a love for sinners. It's a love that is not in any way merited by those who are the recipients of that love. You see? See, when you understand the essence of what the gospel teaches us, that it's the, it is the vehicle to express the holiness of God's love for you, then and only then will you be set free. Then and only then will you now have access into the true, holy presence of God. To where instead of responding, woe is me, you can respond like the author of Hebrews says, to where we go with boldness and with confidence, knowing that our great high priest has gone before us, sacrificing his blood, giving us full access to God's holy presence. And it's by being in the presence of God that all the symptoms that come from being deprived of it, loneliness, anxiety, self-hatred, alienation, is gone. Because now you're no longer alienated if you are in Christ. For God is with you. You're no longer filled with self-abasement because the one who is greater than you loves you. And you're no longer filled with anxiety because you are not alone. Your God is with you and will provide everything he needs, you need, for you to flourish. That's what the gospel teaches us. And that's why the holiness of God is so necessary. Here's my question. Have you received this understanding, and have you responded properly to this idea of God's holiness, evidenced by the fact that anxiety, alienation, abasement are nowhere in your life, or they're slowly coming out of your life with each passing day. I pray that it is, I pray that it will continue to do so. Let's end with some next steps here. First, if you're here today investigating Christianity, Today's message really resonated to where you're ready to just submit your life to Christ as Lord and Savior. Take this time now and go to Him and pray, asking for Him to be the Lord of your life. Number two, take some time this week. Ask yourselves the following question. Do I find the holiness of God boring? Do you find it boring? Right? When you read Scripture and you have access to the words of the Holy God, do you find it boring? When you think about what you could do to spend your recreational time, whether it's to just listen to a message, or to talk to people about the gospel? Is that boring to you to where you'd rather talk about something else, some Facebook feed, some news headline, or some other trivial matter? If the answer is yes, the likelihood is is that you have lost the awe of what the holiness of God is supposed to do. Take some time, like Isaiah did, to repent and say, Woe is me, for for I'm a man of unclean lips, knowing that God has provided the coal for you to be cleansed, for you to once again be blown away by God's holiness. And then take some time this week to watch a sermon from one of my former teachers in seminary by Sinclair Ferguson entitled The Spirit of Holiness, a 50-minute message. If you pass it, if you speed it up to 1.5, it'll be like 27 minutes, right? It's a fantastic message that I think will further deepen your appreciation of what was said today. Let's pray. Father, help us to see the beauty, the power, the significance of your holiness. Father, it's so easy for us to just brush it off as such a trivial thing and to think that it's nothing, that it's irrelevant. Oh, God, we are suffering the consequences of that, aren't we, Lord? By minimizing the holiness, we end up suffering at growing numbers of all the anxiety, of all the fears, of all the hatred within. And Lord, we are in desperate need for you to remedy that, by giving us access to your holiness, but by first humbling us and saving us from our sins. Would you enable us to do that now by your grace so that we can come away people who are more stable and more secure and have more peace within so that we can stay focused on doing the mission at hand of being a blessing to the world. We ask that you would hear us now in Jesus' name. Amen.